Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Alrighty. Um, well, if you have your Bibles, you may open them up to Genesis chapter 26. If you do not have your Bible, it will be behind me on the screen. Um, Alright, so it's been a few weeks, so we'll just have to remind everybody what's going on in Genesis. Um, thus far, we just learned about, uh, in Genesis 25, the death of Abraham, what happened with Ishmael. It's almost all that um, stuff is tied up for us in a neat bow. We then learn about Isaac and Rebekah, how Rebekah, like Sarah, um, was barren, but God still blessed them after 20 years of waiting and patiently uh, requesting that God would answer their prayer. Uh, God did answer with twins, um, and that was, of course, Jacob and Esau. Um, And then from that, we learn immediately that Jacob and Esau are not going to be the best of brothers to each other. And with that, we have the uh, Jacob taking Esau's birthright and all this. But now, before we get into the rest of the Jacob and Esau story, um, we do have one chapter, one, dedicated to Isaac. (laughs) Um, After that, it goes back to Jacob and Esau and then Joseph. So, again, most people are like, or look at Isaac and think, man, he doesn't really, he's kind of like, meh. (laughs) He's like this guy. He's there. He's a link on the chain. Um, But still, we see a lot that happens to him in his life in even one chapter. So, um, yeah, so we'll learn about that. Uh, along with that, I did not mention this in the bulletin, though, uh, not, not next week, but the week after, after we kind of wrap up a little bit of what's going on in Isaac's life, we're going to have a Q&A session before we get into Jacob and Esau. So if you have any questions from all of Abraham or from even before Abraham or um, anything about Isaac's story or anything else just in your head right this second, write it down now, start putting it in the basket, and we'll get to it then. Um, all right, so let's go ahead. Genesis chapter 26. Uh, 1 through 5. Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So to begin with chapter 26, we learn that there was a famine in the land. Immediately we are brought back uh, to think about Abraham, as he too encountered a famine at the beginning of his story. Abraham, however, he went down to Egypt in order to escape the famine. Isaac instead goes to Gerar, where Abimelech is still king of the Philistines. We want to be careful, as it seems unlikely the Philistines mentioned here are the same Philistines who were constantly at war with the Israelites later on um, during the time of the monarchy. Instead, these were either pre-Philistines or a way for the editor to say, this is the approximate location of where Abimelech was king. That is the area of the Philistines. Um, At this point, we see a theophany where God comes to Isaac. He tells Isaac not to sojourn to Egypt. Again, this was something... Abraham had done during the previous famine. Indeed, most of the time when a famine hit the area, Egypt is actually the perfect place to go because the food was always uh, very ripe there because of the Nile. 
As it is, God instead informs Isaac exactly what he informed Abraham, that he should dwell in the land which God tells him. This is only slightly different than what was said to Abraham, as Abraham was told to go to a land that God would show him. Regardless, we find God intervening on Isaac's behalf and giving him a command to follow. Indeed, the promises given to Abraham are actually now spelled out for Isaac, too. Uh, we learn that Isaac should sojourn in the land, that he is to sojourn um, implies non-permanence. He will be an outsider, just as his father was before him. This and most would uh, cause some fear and trepidation for him, because he would be a foreigner in such a place, and as such could be taken advantage of by the inhabitants. And this is, again, the same thing we see with Abraham. God's asking the same idea. Um, and you do, I think, if you're there, you kind of see the theological implications for all of us already. Uh, maybe not. Anyway, uh, yet God gives Isaac peace. Instead, we notice that he will be with Isaac and he will bless Isaac. This is, interestingly enough, the first time God specifically says that he will be with someone in the scriptures. Never making that particular, particular declaration to Abraham. Uh, regardless, God being with Isaac and blessing him would mean that regardless of the situation, God would be for Isaac. Again, the promise is secured for the second generation. Just as Abraham was promised that his offspring would receive the land, so Isaac has promised the same. Likewise, the oath given to Abraham by God is reaffirmed here for Isaac in particular. Indeed, verse 4 reflects back onto Genesis chapter 22, with the exception that the gates of the enemies is replaced with, I shall give to your offspring all these lands. Why this was changed, we are unsure of, uh, though in the end it, it means the exact same thing. In the end, Isaac's descendants will receive the promise of the land. Likewise, there is the continued aspect of blessing, that through his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, Verse 5 is then interesting. Um, The focus of it is on Abraham. It is because Abraham was faithful in his obedience to God that the blessings flowed. He did this through keeping all of God's charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Thus, it reminds us that faithfulness and blessings go hand in hand. Yet even more so, it is interesting to consider that it is because of someone else's obedience that Isaac, as well as Isaac's descendants, received the blessing. Um, Something to ponder, perhaps, for later. I don't know if you guys got that reference yet, but it'll be fun. I'm excited. All right, so... Let's continue on, verses 6 through 11. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of his window and saw Isaac laughing with, his, with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How, then, could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is it that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you could have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Huh. Time continues forward. We learn that the land God had desired for Isaac to stay is, in fact, Gerar, uh, where Abimelech dwelled. Lo and behold... Isaac fell into the same trap as Abraham. While there, he became afraid concerning Rebekah, just as Abraham had concerning Sarah. And instead of calling her his wife, he called Rebekah his sister. The reason? Simple fear. Um, Fear kept 
him from being faithful and obedient and honest in this situation. As such, after time had passed, Abimelech the king saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah. Uh, some translations here have playing instead of laughing, things like that. Uh, the reason for laughing is that it is the, the Hebrew word there is actually wordplay with Isaac's own name, uh, which again means laughter. Regardless of the case, it wasn't just any laughing, <laughs> and likely was more of a romantic playfulness that happens when uh, you know, you're passionate about someone else and you're in love. As such, Abimelech is neither fooled, nor is he very amused. As we remember, Abimelech was an individual who was fearful of committing guilt in his land. As we remember, Abraham feared because he did not believe that there was a fear of the Lord among the people in, uh, where Abimelech was the king. Abimelech showed him otherwise. Now Abimelech seems to not have changed over the years. So Abimelech calls out Isaac. How could Isaac say that Rebekah was his sister when she was clearly his wife? The reason comes forward just as it did with Abraham. He was afraid. The response from Abimelech is much the same. What is this that you have done to us? Indeed, the potential for guilt was strong with this one. He recognized the problem could occur, which is that another individual in his kingdom could have slept with Rebekah. Like before, such an act would have caused guilt to occur on them. One has to wonder if Abimelech is remembering what happened with Abraham. There Sarah was taken, though Abimelech never slept with her. The repercussions of taking, however, was that all the wombs were closed in the land, and God promised certain death should Abimelech sleep with Sarah or hurt Abraham. Thus the guilt, he knows, is real if something like that had occurred and sought immediately to rectify the situation. He did this by making a proclamation to all the people. If anyone touches Isaac or Rebekah, they will be put to death. Thus, in a roundabout way, God still does protect the chosen line through this king, despite the fact that Isaac was in the wrong, just as Abraham had been in the wrong. God still fulfills his promise to Isaac to be with him and bless him. And perhaps this is another lesson for the patriarchs. There is no need to fear. God is with you. Continue to be faithful without giving in to that fear. Um, and again, that's a, definitely something that we can all learn as well. So, the main point of these verses describe the blessing is given over to the next generation through the faithfulness of Abraham. Likewise, the same commands are given to the next generation, be like Abraham. Um, while Abraham is the reason for the blessings, it is a reminder that we should be faithful as well. From this, Isaac goes to the land God has desired for him to sojourn, and while there, has an experience much like his father before him. Before anything could happen, however, Abimelech sees Rebekah and Isaac and draws his own conclusions, right conclusions, and in this way, God blesses Isaac by keeping him safe through Abimelech. All right, so an application point. Uh, I only had one long one. That's faithful and obedient. Uh, within today's text, we see something that with Isaac that we have seen with others in Genesis. Indeed, when Isaac is called, he is faithful and obedient to do what God calls him to do for the most part. Just like Noah and Abraham, Noah in building the ark and Abraham in leaving his father's house, Isaac joins those who are faithful and obedient to the Lord in what he desires for them, which is that he went to the place where God showed him or God told him to go to. With Isaac, we see it as he is told to go to a land instead of Egypt, in particular a land which God would show him, as I just said. As such, Isaac does exactly this. He goes to Gerar, where God would have him to be during the time of the famine. Instead of fighting back, and instead of looking back, like Abraham and Noah before him, Isaac sets his course and heads straight toward it. 
Really, this theme of, of faithful obedience is important for each of us to grasp. Genesis has been telling us over and over again the necessity of faithful obedience to God. It is not enough for us to make a proclamation of faith. For while proclamations are good, the truth is there is far more to the Christian faith than mere proclamation. Indeed, anyone can proclaim. Anyone can say they believe in God, but to live for him in his glory, to desire to know him, to spread the light of Christ, to follow where he calls us to be, this is the evidence of that proclamation. For that is our reality. While we mentioned previously with Abraham that we are not called to go to a different physical land, or at least not always, we are still called to a different land than the one we're born in, and that is the kingdom of God, wherein we find our great redemption from all the pangs of sin and the end result of sin, which is death. In this new land, this new kingdom, this kingdom of God, we are called to live for him in his glory. Thus, from Isaac, Abraham, and Noah before them, we are repeatedly seeing this point made in Genesis. Those who are called will be obedient. Those who are called will be faithful to the calling which God has given to them. The question we may ask is, what is our calling? What has God called you personally to? I think this is the question that we all face in life, really. Where is God calling me to be? As it is, we know from 1 Corinthians that we each have our gifts. Each one of us has our own abilities, our own strength. God, in his mercy, gives each of us gifts which we are to utilize in accordance with the scripture. So what are your gifts? Now, personally, I can't really answer that for you. (laughs) Only God can answer that. And as such, I would recommend praying, seeking the scriptures, and having discussions with each other in order to better understand what God has willed for your life. Indeed, that is the thing. While these gifts are given to each of us as individuals, it goes further than just us. The whole purpose of spiritual gifts, of those found in 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, let's say, are to remind us that the gifts are for the body, the church. Indeed, consider what Paul says. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish spirit between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As such, whatever gift is given to you isn't meant for you to hoard to yourself or to pat yourself on the back, but instead to use for the betterment of those around you for the glory of God. This is true for each of us. Thus, we learn something about this new kingdom which we dwell, that we are not alone in the kingdom. There are others within this kingdom. It isn't a me versus them, or them versus me. No, it is us together for the glory of God, using our various gifts for the glory of God. Us gathering together is a way in which we can better utilize these gifts then for his glory. As such, this is the calling for each of us, to use our gifts for the glory by sharing our gifts with each other. 
This is a partial answer to the above question. Where is God calling you to be? Well, he is calling you to be involved in the church, to love each other, to love God together, each of us as individuals coming together in unity for the glory of God. The church, the congregation, is a marvelous thing in its design, for no person is better than another, and each has a place, an important place, with each other. So while I can't say exactly what your particular gift is, as that belongs to God, I can say where you are to use it, and for what purpose the gift has been given. Yet it is not only with our gifts where God has called us to. Indeed, there are many commands which we are called into faithful obedience. Consider a great one, to seek justice. To seek justice in an unjust world is a pivotal thing. In this way, when we seek justice, we are actively reflecting our God, who shows us exactly what justice is. Each of us should be actively engaged in the world of justice, by not bearing false witness, by praying for truth and seeking truth, um, by speaking out against injustice. To seek justice, um, there are so many forms of injustice in this world that is in need of us to fight against. One we deal with in our area is the sex slave trade, and we bring it up all the time because it's there, and we don't see it because it's so hidden, but it's right beneath our feet. It should be a priority of us to shine the light of Christ on these areas by caring for women and children who have felt the pain of this injustice, through prayer, through actively being involved against it, or through proclaiming it as an injustice in our society. Another form of injustice is false imprisonment. I know it's crazy, but this happens. Thousands of individuals within the U.S. are falsely imprisoned. Such a thing is completely unjust. No one should suffer for crimes they didn't commit. As Christians, we should be at the forefront of fighting against false imprisonments. We can do this by not throwing away our jury duty. We can do this by not quickly coming to assumptions about cases but by hearing the evidence and following where it leads, by calling out against wrongful prosecution. It happens. Ultimately, we are to speak out against any form of injustice, though. Racism, gender inequality in the workforce, slavery of any kind. We are to be praying and doing and focusing on seeking justice in our community, regardless of what it looks like. Why? Because we are called to be a just people. And it is important for each of us to be involved in the way God has called us to be. Not all of us are called to be the poster child of any form of injustice. But we can pray. We can learn. We can be prepared to speak up. And we can desire justice and seek it together and individually. When we do, we are acting in faithful obedience to God who loves justice. These are ultimately examples. And they are only a few. The truth is, again, there is so much to be obedient over, because God has called us to love him with all that we are. As such, there is an endless potential for us to be faithfully obedient to God as we love him with all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength. Likewise, when we are obedient to love our neighbors as ourselves, we fulfill the commandments of Christ, and we are obedient when we do these things. Thus, As we are called into salvation, we are to live our lives of repentance and faith. This is how we are obedient. By repenting of our sin, turning away from sin, 
bearing good fruit by keeping or by seeking God's glory instead of sin and by being faithful in what he has called us to do and faithful in what he has called us in which to imitate Christ. Indeed, this is spelled out for us in the scripture. It comes in ways which are practical. For example, how mothers are to be and how fathers and husbands and wives and children. All of these are spelled out in the scripture. How are you obedient and faithful to be where God has called you to be? Well, the scriptures are the number one place to start. Ultimately, then, the scriptures, as the word of God, are where we find our calling as individuals. It is by reading the scriptures, by learning from them, and seeking to live according to the word of God, that we can find ourselves being faithfully obedient to God in this life. Thus, the scriptures are the foundation for us in our calling. Yet the world tends to discourage us from doing just this. The problem the world has is that it looks at these things and says, we're so beyond that. Or, that was so 2,000 years ago. Well, here's the thing. Does it work when applied? Do such things, obedience and faithfulness, do they fill the world around us with light? The answer to our societal problems isn't to reject the past, but to actually put it into practice on a daily basis. It isn't to reject it because we think we're so much better and we're so good without it, but to actually seek obedience in these things. Christ, the one who is our teacher, our Lord, does not look back on the Old Testament teachings and say, that was so last millennia, that was back with Abraham. No. He takes them to be authoritative and teaches from them as authoritative to his own time and place and assumes that such teachings are forever. Hence, Jesus' own saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that comes from Matthew 5, 17-20. Indeed, we see this Christ affirming the teachings of the scriptures until all has been accomplished. Christ has not yet accomplished at all. There is still death, which is going to be overcome at the end. But until that time, the law, the prophets, the writings, the teachings, they are all in effect. And it is from them we learn the commandments of God and our responsibility as his followers, our duty in this life, which is to glorify him in faithful obedience. Ultimately, this should come as no surprise to us. For when we consider it, Isaac could not take a step without the word of God coming to him first. Neither could Abraham or Noah or any other in the scriptures. Yet... Here we find the word of God, and in it we find understanding of who God is, who we are, and what God has called us to be. It is found in his word. So where is God calling you? Where is God calling you to faithful obedience? The answer is with everything in your life. To be led by the wisdom of the scriptures, and, to, and the example set forth by Christ, for the glory of our Father in heaven. Will we be perfect? By no means. As we see from Isaac or Abraham before him, or even Noah before him, we see that even those who are faithful make mistakes, fail, and are in need of tremendous grace. This doesn't excuse anyone's actions. 
Instead, it reminds us to remain in humility before our God who knows better than we do and to trust him. To learn from Isaac who made a mistake in today's passage by seeking a lie rather than trusting in God. And instead, learning from his failure to simply trust in God. Learning from our own mistakes to do the same. So, seek faithful obedience in your life. Be like Isaac in the right way, following God where he leads us. It may not be where we always want to be led, but it will surely be a far greater place than we could have ever imagined. For our God is good, and he knows what's best for us. Let's trust him then to lead us all the days of our lives, now and forever into his glory. And let us now make the bold declaration that each of us will seek faithful obedience to God above all, regardless of the of the cost. And it's with this that we consider the gospel. Um, you know, huh. I wrote this sermon prior to the New York legislation. Um, we'll talk about it. And you see why, though, every week I come back to this first point over and over and over again. Origins. Where does humanity stem from? Is humanity just time plus matter plus chance? Is humanity just a mass of atoms? Are we just this blob of DNA. Is that all we are? Part of the mechanism? Are we just simply part of the machine that keeps on going? If we are simply part of the machine, and if the naturalist is right to say that all that exists is nature, if they are right in their assumptions, then it doesn't matter. Your life doesn't matter. The whys don't matter. The purpose don't, doesn't matter because you're just part of the machine. It's that assumption that has been at the forefront of, let's say, New York legislation. The idea that what is there has no rights or purpose. But as Christians, we look at it and we say, no, we're not just part of the machine. We are not just part of this continued sense of DNA and matter and that's it and we're just a blob. No, we believe that we are all created in the image of God. We are better than stardust. We're better than all that pretty poetry. We are beyond that. We are so further beyond that that we are made in the image of God who created the stars themselves. And not only that, but you remember that Psalm, Psalm 139? God knit me together in my mother's womb. You ever think about the imagery of that? And then think about how God created the universe, how he spoke it into existence, but then Psalm 139 says, God knit me. Is knitting harder than speaking? (laughs) Isn't it? Ellen knows. She knits. Quilters Guild. It is, though. Knitting is harder than speaking, isn't it? Because it takes precious time. And yet that's what God describes in the womb. Humans are knit, carefully put together, step by step. How wonderful is that? 
that this great powerful God of the universe who spoke the universe into existence knits us carefully by design. It's a beautiful image. And why is it so important? Because we're made in his image and it's from this image of God that we are created with dignity, sanctity, and worth and deserve life. But now what else do we see though? You know what? Today we see the effects of the fall, don't we? We see a guy who cannot fully follow after God and still doesn't trust completely and has to lie in order to protect himself because that's where his first concern is, is himself in the end. You know, and that's the thing. We, that's who we are as humans. We like to protect ourselves. We think that if we were not to protect ourselves, who would have our back then? And isn't that the case with so many people? And isn't that just the result of the fall? That we would do such a thing as to not realize that God is for us who can be against us. And so it is, the fall happens and we lie, we cheat, we steal, we murder. We continue on with practices which are, by all definitions, abominable. Not only personally, but as societies, we decide to do what the prophets proclaimed over and over and over again. You take what is unjust and you make it just and God's going to judge you forever. We need to be careful with how our society deals with things and we need to speak up about these unjust practices. We are called to be the prophets in our society today. Now, the prophets, people think that the prophets only said, okay, you know, in 20 years you're going to be destroyed and always in the future. No, if you read the prophets, they're very much focused on what the society is doing in their own time. And they're very much always saying, you're wrong. (laughs) What you're doing is evil. You deserve judgment because of it. And judgment will come if you don't change. That's the future. But they always focus on the here and now. And so it is that the fall happens and we do these unjust things and we fall into sin and the question is, how do we escape the judgment? Well, redemption happens by grace through faith. And that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. And that if we should put our faith in him, we would receive the glory of God, and that we can be redeemed for the glory of God, and all the sin that we've accumulated in our lives can be overturned. And not only that, but we would receive all the righteousness that gives, that Christ owns, and he gives it to us. And so we need to be remembering this, because guess what? You know, with this new law in New York, for example, that continues that trend where people are just, again, naturalist machines, there's going to be a lot of women who follow that for a long time in their lives. There's going to be a lot of women who believe it. There's going to be a lot of women who have abortions. What we have to be careful with is not simply condemning them, but reminding them they can have redemption from that even. Because redemption is there for all, should they have faith in Christ. And you know what? Does that mean, though, that we don't say that something is immoral? No. And I use this as an analogy. Let's say that there's a starving child and they steal a loaf of bread. Do you understand why that child stole bread? You understand it, right? It makes sense to you. You understand the fact that the child was starving and it needed something to eat, otherwise it's going to die. Does it make the theft right? No. Stealing is wrong. 
but we can still understand it and comprehend why it happened. Same thing with, let's say, someone who lies under duress. Let's say someone is like, has a gun to their head and they're told, lie or die. And then they lie. Is the lying right? No. But you can understand why they're lying, don't you? The same thing with these women. These women who are in very hard circumstances, we can understand them without saying that it's moral or just. And that's where we have to balance it, and it's a hard balance. Because the truth is, for example, myself, I'm getting all preachy on you. (laughs) What right do I have, right? Anyway, (laughs) I have the mic. (laughs) No. Um, You know, I'm thinking about this whole thing about it, and... uh, it makes you think, okay, we're, we're, there's a lot of people who say, okay, you can't be too angry about injustice because, you know, there's these women who are in these circumstances, and I get it. But then I think of Jesus, right? And Jesus, when he goes into the temple, and he just makes a whip, and he's whipping people out of the temple, and he's flipping over tables, and he's just yelling at people, and he's angry. Why is he angry? You're polluting my father's house. Polluting it. And it made me think, You can be passionate about injustice. Because we have people who aren't polluting possible houses of God. We have people obliterating them. Would Jesus not be a little upset about that? I think he would. But we have to, again, be careful about how it's said, yes. We don't want to just bash people just for the sake of bashing people. We want to stand against the injustice is the trick. We live in a dark world. We live in a world that likes sin. We live in a world that would rather take the easier way out than trust in God. We live in a world where we have to ask the hard questions. What are we going to do about the starving child? Are we going to ignore the starving child? Or are we going to find a way to help the child so they don't have to starve and thieve? Same thing with these people, these women who are in these situations where they think they have no way out. We have to have a response. What's our response going to be? That's the question. It's a challenge. It's hard. But I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. And that is how redemption takes place, not only in our lives from sin, but also in the fact that we can change the world, people, through this redemption. And it's a great change. And ultimately, it's always leading us forward into glory. And we get to partake of that glory in bits and pieces now, but we're going to enter into it until it bathes us. And, you know, I I love the story um, of the resurrection in this book today and how it depicts Mary, right? And how she's running, and she seems like she can't stop running, and she's so filled with light, and everything around her is filled with joy. You know, I think that's how it really was when you first encounter life like that. The first person who encountered the risen Jesus. And she's so filled with it. Imagine having that feeling forever. That's where we're going towards. How exciting. We're getting there. But it starts today with us changing. And we're not called to... We're not called to faithlessness and we're not called to disobedience. We're called to faithfulness and obedience even when it's hard. We're in that place now. Let's continue to do what we're called to do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the stories of the saints of old, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for all of them, Lord, for Noah. 
Because, Lord, from them we remember how much we are in need of grace. And, Lord, we see images of you as we read the stories. How they are blessed because of Abraham's faithfulness. Lord, are we not also blessed because of the faithfulness of your son, Jesus Christ, if we have faith in him? Are we not also given the promise because of Jesus? And so, Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts and minds to you. And that ultimately we would be bold. Bold for your glory. Bold for justice. Bold and loving and understanding and charitable. There's so much sorrow in this world, Lord. So much pain, so much suffering. Christ knew it all. So Lord, let us help and use us to help alleviate some of the pain, even if we get hurt ourselves. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.